Hello and welcome back to the Atmosphere is Electric. As always, you're joined by me, Rich, and my special friend, Fran. How are you today, Fran? Yeah, I'm really good, thank you. I'm a bit, I've got a little bit of a cold, but apart from that, I'm, I'm good. How are you? Is that because you've been out watching football in the rain? It was definitely looked like a wet night. Wherever you was watching football last night, it definitely looked very wet, didn't it, on the TV? The Southampton and Bournemouth game particularly looked, looked a bit like water polo at points. It wasn't a game that you'd actually like to be at looking at the weather, was it? But no, I'd, lo- I'd love to tell you it was a game that I was there watching, but no, it's not because of that. And I actually couldn't tell you where it's come from. Okay, fair enough. This is not a medical podcast, so that's fine. We'll let, we'll let that slide. Uh, <laughs> maybe maybe another time. Let loads to get through today, obviously. Uh, midweek fixture, uh, jam-packed with action and talking points, as well as, of course, another huge weekend just around the corner. So let's get straight into the action, Fran. And I think you'll agree... Uh, there's only one place that we can start. We spoke about it, obviously, in detail on Tuesday. The Etihad on Wednesday night, Man City 4, Arsenal 1. You know, What was your take on what ended up being a demolition job by Man City in the end? It was men against boys, really, wasn't it? But I don't actually think that Arsenal played badly. I thought they played relatively well. Man City were just a different level, weren't they? The way they moved the ball, the way they kept the ball, the pace that they attacked, the intensity. It just proved that they are the best team in the league. And, you know, you look at the table now, it's in their hands big time, isn't it? And I just thought everything was in their favour going into the game, sort of the run of form that they were on, the way they were playing, and it just carried on, didn't it? It it sort of went to the form book. And, um, yeah, I thought they were really, really good. And and from Arsenal's perspective, I didn't think they were that bad. You know, the scoreline made it look bad. And it could have been, you know, 7 or 8-1, don't get me wrong. But I didn't think Arsenal were that bad. They didn't look, you know, they didn't come out performing like it was a, a 7 or 8-1 game. I just thought Man City were, were really good. I, th- I think there's a couple of really uh, interesting sort of touch points within that, that actually, like you say, another team that wasn't as good as Arsenal playing against Man City on that day in that way, it could have been out of hand. It was, you know, it could have been out of hand for Arsenal and they are clearly the second best team, you know, arguably still top of the Premier League, you have to say best, but, but it's arguably now second best team in the Premier League and it could have been 4-0 at half-time. You know, we we predicted as we do every week. We predicted the score, and, and we we both just sort of agreed on three one. And when it was three one, I was almost embarrassed at that being correct because I just felt that Man City was so far beyond what Arsenal had achieved that, that actually, like I say, Haaland could on another day could have had three or four goals. Yeah, yeah, and I, and that's why I say I think Arsenal actually did quite well to keep it to that score. You know, I thought the goalie made some good saves. Um, I thought the defense did quite a good job as well because Haaland was running right, wasn't he? He proved that he's unbelievable not that everyone didn't know that already but he was superb throughout the whole game wasn't he had completely bullied that defense and actually think Arsenal did well to sort of handle him in in that form so I don't think even though the score suggests it was like a battering I don't think they were disgraced I thought Arsenal actually put up a good fight yeah that what I what I took from the game maybe three things firstly I saw the influence of Deserbi on Guardiola I saw Man City start to open up space from goal kicks and, and, and the ball in their own area to try and occasionally do that. And there was one time in the second half where they just basically went route one. I think it was, uh, it doesn't matter, John Stones, I think, was he just basically smashed the ball from his own six-yard box. It bounced over the centre-back and Harlem was through and on goal. And and I can see the learnings that he's taken from De Zerbe's putting the putting the pitch apart, playing with four up top when you've got a goal kick. And I think that was a really interesting development for Man City that they be, they looked more direct to me than they have done in a long while. And and they played De Bruyne in a in a sort of a four four two, where actually it was De Bruyne that was almost putting the strings, wasn't it? That he was the one that finding the spaces that, that for Haaland to, to create assists. Yeah, I thought that was interesting as well because uh, De Bruyne got interviewed after the game and they said that they'd worked in that at training about bringing, you know, making that space so actually Edison's long ball was effective and they don't they don't play that, do they? They haven't played that in a long while. So actually it was a bit of a surprise, but you can see that they worked, at, worked on that in training. And, and wait, like you said, whether that's come from De Zerbe or whether that's a Guardiola idea, but it's just, again, thinking outside the box, isn't it? Like we said last week, little tweaks here and there just to change your game, make, you know, make it so it's not predictable and, and it just shows you why he's the best coach in the world, doesn't it? Yeah, look, if, if, and this is for obviously the, the, the wider audience, but if you haven't noticed it yet, now notice how often when your goalkeeper has the ball on the six-yard line from a goal kick, how many teams will have four of their players on the halfway line or beyond trying to really stretch that play and the gap in the pocket is between the front four and the midfield where they can drop the ball instead of people to come deep to turn and space so they're trying to create. Because what we'd done as a football generation was we'd all made those goal kicks so short 
that the other team could just press you really high and really tight and it was difficult to get out. But now by sending four people out, there's now big pockets of space. And again, that is very much Deserby is at the forefront of that conversation. He's, he's someone that likes to build up play with purpose. And I saw that purpose in Man City on Wednesday night. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting point about playing out from the back is where where you've got those players who or teams that want to play that, but without actually knowing how to do it, it becomes a car crash, doesn't it? So actually, if you are being drilled, like De Bruyne was saying in training, this is where you need to stand. And if somebody stands there, the ball will go here, etc. I think that's really important that it's actually practised and you have that pattern of play. Because I think a lot of teams, like we mentioned last week, are just playing it for the sake of it. And it doesn't work if you don't know what you're doing. So it's really good to hear that, um, you know, from De Bruyne that they've been working on a different style and, and that it's been implemented in training. And, and for me, that that's a real strength of, of Guardiola is that he's seen somebody come into his league, do something different, and he's adapting it to his players. And actually, you know, as we said the other day with Edison, arguably the best sort of football playing goalkeeper in the league, they should be the best at doing that. Actually, you know, he's got a lovely ping. He's got a lovely 60, 70 yard pass. And actually, the minute you pull Haaland, I, I thought Haaland looks more like a traditional number nine against Arsenal than he has done this. Sometimes he's looked a bit lost, sort of in the pockets, not understanding where to be. I felt they played more to Haaland's strengths on Wednesday night. They used him more as a target man, didn't they? Things were bouncing into yeah. him and he was he was setting up play, which, like you said, when he first got there, he was just a goal scorer. Really. Nothing else went through him. And that was the accusation against him, saying that they've made... Man City worse by having him in the team which I don't think anyone really believed but that was the accusation against him but yeah the evidence was there against Arsenal that he was sort of the main threat wasn't he as in the ball was coming into him and he was starting attacks and I thought it was really good to see that even you know the arch obviously working with him trying to get him better at holding the ball up and integrating their style of play into his and it seems to just be have gone to another level now doesn't it yeah he's he there's rumours coming out that he now might, might actually stay for a little bit longer as well, which tells me that he's enjoying the development under Pep, You know that he's, he's learning new things. But the other players for me that were the difference was Akanji and Walker. The job they did on Martinelli and Saka and the masterstroke of moving Akanji to the left back to, to, to Mark Saka, I thought showed, because if you remember the first game, Arsenal actually gave Man City a bit of a hiding there. Bernardo Silva in the left back role, who, who could have got sent off arguably. You know, It was a very, very different game. And Pep had learnt from that. And, and I thought Akanji was absolutely superb in that role. I thought he did an amazing job on Saka. He's, we mentioned it in the last pod, didn't we, that he's got pace and power. And when you're up against people like a Martinelli or a Saka who are quick and dribble at you, you do need that recovery speed. And that's what Walker's got. And that's what Akanji's got. So, yeah, I, I thought it was a good change moving that moving him over there to be able to match speed with Saka. Because that's his main, his main threat, isn't it? Speed down the wing. And yeah, it completely nullified both of them. There was there's periods of the game where if you looked on Twitter, people were suggesting why is Saka not playing? Like just as a joke, which that shows you how well that Akanji wrapped him up. He completely wrapped him up, didn't he? And and we mentioned him on the last last pod saying what a great signing that he's been. Great signing for what's it, fifteen million pounds. Versatile, quick, good on the ball. He's he's almost a complete defender, isn't he? And for fifteen million quid, what's snip? Yeah, he's played right back, centre back, and left back now, and and actually, you know, looked pretty established and comfortable in all three roles. And you know, I don't think anybody has done the job on Saka that he did this. You know, every game this season, even if Saka hasn't scored, he's looked a threat. He's created chances. You know, both him and Martinelli on Wednesday night were completely irrelevant in the game. And like you say, the jokes were flying, and that's a testament to you know, Carl Walker's nearly thirty two, but still got that absolute burn pace that, that that keeps him in the game. And you know, they didn't try and play that kind of false fall back into central midfield role at the week on Wednesday night because they knew that the that's the wide sort of spaces where Arsenal are the most dangerous. So I thought Pep showed uh, that old adage of you know he taught Mikel Arteta everything Mikel Arteta knows, but not everything Pep Guardiola knows. And it was like the student had come to try and beat the teacher, but the teacher went, yeah, I've still got some tricks up my sleeve. And I thought he out-tacticked him brilliantly. Yeah, and and I'm just going to give a shout out to one Arsenal player who I thought had a really good game considering um, the other two that we've mentioned were marked out the game completely. I thought Jesus had a good game. You know, he was really coming deep, getting on the ball. And I thought out of everyone, he looked the most dangerous. And and like I said, considering Saka and Martinelli were completely marked out of the game and didn't hardly touch the ball, I thought Jesus gave a good account of himself up there. But whatever happens this season, Arsenal have had, like individually and as a team, a phenomenal season. You know, like nobody at the start of the season would have had Arsenal finishing second. 
pretty confident they've got that at least in the bag. Uh, still a chance of winning the league, of course, but you know, ultimately, I think we'll, we'll come on to it in a second. But I think we both feel that that, that chance is now passed. So to come second in a league with the Liverpools, the Chelsea's, the Man U's, etc., you know, that, that's still a phenomenal achievement. And within that, there's been some real shining lights. You know, the, the centre back pairing, obviously, Gabriel Jesus has come on board and, and, and really taken them up a level. And obviously, the midfield, Odegaard, you know, Xhaka has been a player converted from from a journeyman sort of you know irritation to you know a Premier League leader so so you know with the job that they're doing is fantastic they just unfortunately for them came up against Man City at the wrong time right yeah and Arsenal have got a lot to be proud of for the season that they've had but also looking forward they've got was it the second youngest squad in the league I think it is it might they might even be the youngest and you know when you've got a squad like that that's performing at the levels that they have you know they're expected to drop off they're a young side but looking forward to the next next season the season before and the next season if you've got a young squad, you're only going to get better. And if you keep adding talent to it as well, which I think they will, and surely they will, and if they can keep hold of the best players, it's an exciting few seasons coming up for them, isn't it? Like they've got a good manager in there, the club is moving in the right direction. So they've got a lot to be excited about moving forward and they shouldn't be as hard on themselves as what a lot of Arsenal fans are. I've heard a few people on TalkSpot saying that Arteta should be sacked. That's just absolute nonsense. But they've got a lot to be excited about. And I said, if they can keep pressing forwards with, you know, a couple of more signings to the squad, and, you know, they need to be quality rather than quantity. If they can do that, they're going to be in with a chance next year because they've learned from this experience. Yeah. Arsenal didn't lose a title on, on Wednesday night. They lost the title in the three games before Wednesday night. And whether the Wednesday night fixture was looming looming over them. and, and they, But as we've said, you know, and, and I'm sorry to say they, they have bottled their chance but not a Man City. If you stick six points on them that they should have had from the previous three games, Liverpool 2 nil up, you should win that game. West Ham 2 nil up, you should win that game. And Southampton at home, you should never draw that. There's six points they've dropped that even if they lost on Wednesday night, that would put them on 81 and they'd still be home and host. They'd still be in their hands. So this is not Wednesday night's problem. This is the last three games and against teams that they would have beaten if they'd have played, as we said, if they played them in November or December, Arsenal would have won all of those games, 4-1, 5-0, and they bottled it. They, 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 they're at the wrong time the maturity wasn't there for them to go on and win those games. Wednesday night's game has put the final nail in the coffin, but that's not where they lost the league. No, I agree with that entirely. They, they didn't lose, lose the league against Man City. They've lost that in, the, like I said, drawing three games in a row against teams that they should be beating, probably with the exception of Liverpool. But when you're 2-0 up, you should be beating Liverpool. So yeah, I agree with that entirely. I think one thing to highlight on, on Arsenal is, is they are a young squad and they don't have that... Um, that experience of probably challenging for a title. I don't think anyone in that squad does, um, with the exception of the, the two Man City players that have come in, which is probably a reason why they've all of a sudden pushed up the league, having that experience coming in from Zinchenko and Jesus. But the, they don't have that experience of winning leagues. So this will do them the world of good going into next year. And I fully expect them to be challenging next year. Of course, but just to remind Alan Hansen that you can win stuff with youngsters, okay? It's, it's <laughs> a very long time ago when Man United won the Premier League with youngsters. But like I say, a really, really amazing team effort from Man City and Arsenal. Uh, although be it, we feel they'll, they'll come short, have had a fantastic season. And we now have to touch on those other games down the bottom of the table, Fran. That we, you know, our other big game was, was obviously the Leeds-Leicester game. But I think whilst we touch on that, I think we also have to throw the Knotts Forest game in the mix because... That's really put the cat amongst the pigeons down there, isn't it? Not as far as getting the win against Brighton. Yeah, we asked the question during the Leeds-Leicester preview, didn't we? Of Would you take a point now to both fans? And I think everyone would have said no. But then at the, t- I know at the end of the game, both fans probably reflected and went, yeah, I would take a point. But it was with the exception of, of that Forrest lost and Everton. Now Everton went and lost, but Forrest won. And that now puts Leicester in the relegation zone, but also Leeds in serious trouble as well because now the four teams that are all around one or two points. Whereas before, Forrest was sort of getting cut adrift. So now it's back into being a real tight pack. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Forrest, a lot of people expected Forrest to, to get beat. I was one of them. But when you look back and you're going, you know, Brighton had a hard game, didn't they? It went to extra time and it looked like their legs ran out. They ran out of steam at the end of the game and Forrest took full advantage. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's made the, the bottom five, probably with the exception of Southampton now, who do seem to be getting cut adrift. That pack has tightened. So the games coming up in, in this game week, which we'll, we'll come to, seem to be even more crucial. They are proper relegation six-pointers. 
Yeah, exactly. And, and I think uh, just touching on your point around sort of Brighton, I, th- I think it was also fair for anybody that watched a Man U game yesterday that you could see second half, you know, yes, well done Spurs for coming back out and putting a little bit more effort in. But ultimately, you could argue that it's because Man United's legs went as well. And so actually both teams that had that really emotional, you know, finished quite late on Sunday, extra time penalties, semi-final struggled in midweek. And it's not a surprise for that to be the case. Obviously, it's luck with the draw when you get to play the team. So not for us fully took advantage of that. And and they'll actually get themselves out. And, and, and I'm sure if you're, you know, sort of part of the Leicester setup or fan, you must have been thinking, right, four points in two games, you know, we're on the up. And to now still be back in the relegation zone, one point beneath Notts Forest must feel like a real kick in the you-know-whats. And so, you know, I thought the game itself, Leicester were doing quite well until Leeds scored. And as I say, games, goals change games. Then felt Leeds were on top for a while, but but Leicester always looked a threat. They always looked, you know, and had a couple of goals disallowed. Okay, correctly, but nonetheless, you know, they looked like they were on the cusp of, of scoring a goal. And so I, I still think that Leicester, out of those teams, are, are in the better patch of form. But now they must be feeling pretty low about being in the bottom three still. Yeah, I I think I would agree with that. I think they're probably in a bit better moment now. I think the team coming back to get a draw rather than losing the one nil lead like Leeds did you probably get a bit more of an uplift with that, don't you? As opposed to conceding and, and losing those three points. So they'll probably be happier with the point as opposed to Leeds. Um, but yeah, I mean, that the, the Leeds-Leicester game, I, th- I thought the big turning moment of that game was Tielemans' disallowed goal. It was obviously an absolute rocket, wasn't it? And I think having a goal disallowed in that manner really hurt Leicester. You saw that after, straight after that happened, Leeds got a real lift with it and Leicester went on the decline. So I thought for the first 15, 20 minutes, Leicester dominated. Um, and they said that disallowed goal really seemed to lift the crowd, which then in turn lifted Leeds. And I think that had a big bearing on on the first half. I thought second half afterwards, um, Leicester came out really well. And actually, Leeds didn't have a lot going forwards. They didn't really have a lot on the break. Leicester dominated the second half and I thought they deserved a goal. I didn't actually think Leicester looked like scoring, though. They attacked quite a lot, but they didn't seem to have a lot of cutting edge. And it was only until Vardy came on that he really seemed to... He, he he came on and he looked like the old Vardy, didn't he? You know, running in behind, he, he looked like he hadn't lost that pace when previous weeks he has. So that'll be interesting for the running as well to see if Jamie Vardy looks like he's coming back into form because that'll be a real boost for Leicester. Well, I, and if any of those teams that we're talking about, Everton, Leicester, Forest or Leeds can get a centre forward firing. And, you know, because... To be fair to all of those teams, that, that that's what they're missing. Even Southampton, to a, to a point, are, are missing that focal point, that goal scorer. Even sort of 15 goals. I'm not even talking Harry Kane, Haaland sort of numbers. I'm talking, you know, 12 to 15 goals a season would make the difference right now. And it's so close that just just a couple of wins, just a couple of streaky one nils, two ones, you know, puts you on 36, 35 points and you're probably going to be safe. And so the thing for Leeds for me, is other than Harrison, they all seem to be just a little bit out of form at the moment. Harrison seems to be the only one that's playing to his level and and they, they always give you a goal. And so I do I do still worry about Leeds in the sense that I don't know where their victories are coming from. You know, even though they've got, and we'll come on to it obviously uh, in a not too distant future, they've got Bournemouth on, on Sunday. I don't, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not so sure that Leeds go there and win because Bournemouth, you know, just picking up results again, watched them last night. They, they looked really good at times and they played some good football. They were much more attra- attacking threat than than Southampton. And so if Leicester can get Jamie Vardy firing, that could be the difference. Yeah, and, and I mean, I'll come on to Leeds in a minute, but Leicester, th- their problem actually isn't scoring goals. If you look at the goals for, they scored 44, which is roughly for most teams, 20 more than anyone else around them. Their problem is conceding. They've, they've conceded more goals than... Yeah, than everyone else around them, pretty much. So if they can, you know, get Jamie Vardy in, back into some form, unfortunately, like Ian Acho went off injured, didn't he? And he, he seems to be one of the most important players at the minute. But you've got Madison, you've got Barnes there, who are all goal scorers. If they can start working on the defence and ensuring that they don't concede goals, like that, it was a bit of a sloppy goal, really, against Leeds, wasn't it? If they can if they can cut that out, they win the game. And if they can do that moving forwards, I, th- I agree with you. They've probably got the more attacking potency than the, the bottom five uh, than the rest of the teams around them. It's just if they can tie it up at the other end. On your point around Leeds and and saying, um, you know, people look out of form, there's one player that is in form for them, which is Sinestera. But he went off injured. So it's going to be a worry for them if he's out for a couple of weeks or to the end of the season. I don't know the extent of the injury, to be honest, but he he did look really good until he went off injured. And I thought that had a big part to play in the game as well because he did look like he was tearing um, Castagna to bits down their left-hand side. 
yeah, he's a, he's just he's a, he's a sort of up and down sort of a player, isn't he? In the sense that when he's hot, he's really hot, but then he sort of goes disappearing for a couple of weeks. And and you're right, look, you know, Leeds have, have, have built their reputation on being a great team, not a team of individuals. You know, they haven't really got that superstar player. You know, they make additions that add to the the team strength rather than the individual strength. But at the moment, for me, I'm just not sure where their next win is coming from, and that that's that's going to be a concern for all, all Leeds fans. And players alike, and, and like I said, with not as far as picking up that win at the, at the sort of midweek, that that does bring them right back into the into the mix and gives them a a real shot at this. Because again, you know, you talk about the we, well, we have talked about how great the Leeds fans are. The Notts Forest, oh, sorry, the Nottingham Forest fans have been fantastic for the last couple of years as well, haven't they? Yeah, they make a great atmosphere, don't they? There, um, I think one and. But you know, back to the point on Leeds that we said last week around if, if Leicester would have scored first, the, the crowd would have quieted down. It's the same at you know at most grounds. But what Forest did really well against Brighton was you could actually hear them, couldn't they, in the background? They were they were going wild all game. Which if they can keep that atmosphere up for the end for the remainder of the season, they're going to have a good chance as well. Um, I mean, we were talking about them dropping like a stone. Their form was horrendous, but that win is going to give them a shot in the arm. When you look at the form table, it's now there's only two teams with a win in the last two games, and that's Leicester and Forest. And said so the rest of the team seems to be dropping off a cliff. So it just shows you what one win can do, though. So everyone was talking about Forest being certs. So all of a sudden, they're out of the relegation zone, and now. People are saying, oh, Everton seem doomed. Leeds seem doomed. So it's just one win. One win can change that for you. So these games coming up, you know, Leicester-Everton, which we'll come on to, Leeds-Bournemouth. There's there's a lot of these games coming in the next few weeks, which if you can get a win, it changes the, the complexion of the table massively, doesn't it? It certainly can do. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, again, the... the, the... There's, there's also at this stage of the season, you just touched on it, the importance of the, the fans being on board, being behind the team is like a 12, I know it's a cliche, but it's like a 12th man, it does make a difference. But also it's the manner of the defeat as well. You know, we spoke about, you know, Man City did tell Leicester a new one, but in that second half, Leicester came back. Everton must be absolutely on the floor after being pulled to pieces by a, a resurgent on-form Newcastle team. But to... to you know, in the past, that would have been a game that was very 50-50. You know, Everton-Newcastle feels like a, a traditional Premier League game that, you know, either team could win. They got absolutely battered 4-1 at home. That Those Everton players and the Everton board and fans must be absolutely petrified now because it's the manner of that defeat that leaves me worried for them. Yeah, and, and do you know when you, you looked before the game, there was pictures of blue flares, you know, welcoming the team bus and also around the Newcastle bus. And then there was a picture on Twitter of, I think it was like 20 minutes left, and the, the ground was empty, which I get that you're getting beat. But like we've just mentioned about the about Forest and Leeds and the, the home fans, like if you get behind your team, it makes a difference. When you I know they were 3-1 down, but when you're 3-1 down, you need your fans. So I, that didn't make any sense to me. Yeah, so... And and it must be like you said because you know they think that they're doomed. Like there's a bit of doom and gloom around the ground. The fans they must think that they're going down. But that's when they need your fans to pull together and you know get behind the team. So yeah, I mean Everton do worry me because their their form looks horrendous. He can't see where the goals are coming from for them. And I think Dyche said in his interview we seem to concede a goal and we drop and then we concede another and another. And that does seem to be their pat- pattern at the minute. So so Monday night against Leicester is massive for them. It's massive for both clubs. Let's be honest, and and arguably, you know, we'll come on to it. Of course, we will. But but because it's one of our games that we've got to talk about. But you know, when we spoke about is a point a good you know result for for Leeds and Leicester last week, a point in that game was going to be an absolute disaster for both teams. I think uh, you know one team needs to be winning that game to give themselves a chance of of, of getting over the line and coming out of it. But what was interesting is I, and I don't know why I did it, but just had a quick look at sort of the league table about this time last year. And Leeds and Everton were both Southampton were both down the bottom again. The only team that wasn't obviously not as far as went in Lee, but but Leicester were obviously I think ninth in the table at the time. But the other teams down there were all down there last season, and so that's no coincidence that they're down there again this season. Like systematically, if they stay up, you know they have to do something different this summer to make sure they're not in that position again the next year. Yeah, and we spoke about it before we recruitment. Recruitment's key, and all of those teams haven't seemed to have that clear recruitment plan, and that's why they are where they are. Um, on the on the front of all of those teams around the relegation battle as well, they all seem to have got a manager in now, don't they? Who seems to be a relegation specialist, and we, the one that surprised me the most is Everton. You know, we expected Dyche to come in there and just go, "We're not. We're going to be really hard to beat, and we're going to pick up points the ugly way." They don't seem to be playing like a Dyche team, do they? 
But I don't, I don't know whether it's because he can't get his ideas across and just the way that he came out in the press yesterday saying, you know, you know, once we concede a goal, we're a bit flaky. We'll concede another one. That isn't a Daesh team. So they worry me the most at the minute out of the the teams, not Southampton included, um, out of the, the other four leads, Forest, Leicester and Everton. I think Everton are the one that worry me the most at the minute because they don't seem to be scoring goals but concede a lot. Yeah, yeah, look, yeah, absolutely, completely agree. I, I, I think obviously we'll, we'll we'll come on to who we think. I, I would just like to throw out there. I know this is a bit of a mid-table conversation, but but one that I think is really interesting is Chelsea losing again. You know, this team are one of the most expensive teams in the history of the game. You know, they, they, they've got I think it's something like thirty-four professional, you know, first-team players that have cost nearly half a billion pound or whatever it is. They got tonked again. That's six games. Like if the, if the season was even three games longer, there's a chance this team would go down. Like they can't buy a win. They're not scoring goals. I mean, Frank Lampard surely will never be. He will never be a professional football manager again after this. Surely. Do you know what? I'm a bit. I'm a bit torn. So I, I don't rate Frank Lampard in the slightest. But he has come into a, a, a team which is completely non-functional. And, and if you'd said to me, could a, a better manager get more out of them? Of, of course, I think that entirely. But what I think Frank Lampard did was, I think he looked at the squad and thought, oh, all I have to do is go in there and make it, you know, and they'll start playing for me. I'll get a few wins, and my career sort of resurrected. Well, it's gone the complete opposite way. Everyone was thinking it was a no-brainer for him to take the job he's completely, like you said, I can't see him ever getting a job in the Premier League again. He's going to have to go to the Championship, possibly League One, and build up his reputation again. But he looks completely defeated, doesn't he, on the touchline? So this whole, you know, it's happened with Spurs as well, the the interim manager. It's completely backfired. And like you said, I can't see him getting another job in the Premier League. No, no. And let's not forget that he was the, the Everton manager. That, that's left them in the predicament they're in. And, and like I say, if the season was a three or four games, arguably he could take two teams down in a season. What's the stat around him where, isn't it something, I'm making the number up, but it's something like this. It's something like his past 17 games, he's had one win, something like that, which right. is just, as a Premier League manager over two teams, that's just bonkers. Yeah, it shows that there's a, a, a problem there somewhere, right? You, you know, you've got to be able to find a way. And like I say, I can almost forgive Everton, you know, missing players, maybe not having the right type of players. At Chelsea, you've got Thiago Silva, you've got a hundred million pound in Mudrick, you've got Aubameyang that doesn't get played, you've got Aspilicueta that's got five hundred Premier League games under his belt. You know, you've got Angolo Kante, who's arguably one of the best Premier League midfield of our generation. You've got Mason Mountain from the England squad. You've got Conagat. You've got so many tools. That you're you're churning out. I I I, I do I do worry for Chelsea because I'm I'm also not convinced to be honest with you, that Poch is the right man to take them for because it looks like he's going in there. I'm not sure that he's the right man for that problem. I, I do worry about Chelsea for next season. Do you know Do you know what I think one of Lampard's biggest problems is? Is he doesn't make logical decisions, which I think you know it sounds really basic, but if you if you get the basics right in football, generally your team performs quite well. And an example of that is Kante for the past two games has been playing in the number ten role. Like he he's, he was, or you know, probably is when he's when he's fit. He's the best defensive midfielder in world football, and he's been playing him higher up the pitch as a technical player, which just as it isn't his game. Like he's good at carrying the ball, but he breaks them deep. So little decisions like that, and it could be because he doesn't have that attacking number ten, so he's having to improvise. But don't play a number ten if you've got a number ten. Like do the basics. Put Kante in his position where he's best. And that, to me, signals why Lampard's gone in there and not done very well. Like, they clearly don't have respect for him as a manager. He might have done as a player. Um, but also, does it highlight that Graham Potter actually wasn't doing that bad of a job? Because since Lampard's come in, they've got worse, which we didn't think was possible. Yeah, the, the, the big mistake from it, and I mean it sincerely, that I, I believe the owners have made is that you've said, Here's a project manager in terms of Graham Potter. I don't mean a project manager. I mean, as in a manager that, that, that's going to take the project on. Seven-year contract. You've got to expect it to not go from naught to 10 in, in season one. You've got to give him the time to build that. That's what he does. That's what you've employed him for. And then you've gone, oh, it's not quite going as hunky-dory as we'd hoped. Bearing in mind, they were still in the quarterfinal Champions League, so not too serious, not, not, too, not too shabby. And you've, you've, you've bottled it at the first possible moment you could have bottled it. Without a plan, without without knowing what's going on, and and you've 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 basically set your project back by maybe eight months. And again, if I'm a player now, and you know we spoke, excuse me, we spoke about Arsenal making a couple of additions. If I'm a player, and I've got the choice of Arsenal or Chelsea, I am one hundred percent signing for Arsenal every single time over Chelsea right now. 
I'll tell you what the interesting thing about that is. It will tell you the type of person and player that goes to Chelsea is you will get mercenaries go to Chelsea because they'll probably pay more. There'll be a big transfer fee. But if you're a serious player and you want to progress and you want to win things, you'll definitely go to Arsenal. Yeah, I, I just feel that, that Chelsea don't have a game plan. Like I say, that Arsenal, they, they missed out on their death. If you remember, they missed out on Woodridge. They went to Chelsea, right? They went and got Trossard instead. Like they've got, they've got that. We spoke about having a plan B and a plan C and a plan D if that doesn't work. And we spoke about Brighton and Brentford having really good examples of that. You know, Arsenal didn't get either of their first choice. They missed out on Martinez. They went to Man United. They brought in Zinchenko. So, so like the, And both of those players have actually made their score better. They've got a plan. They've got a system. They know what they're trying to do. The only way I see Chelsea, if I'm honest with you, converting into the team that they should be is if Poch can bring Lukaku back and get Lukaku playing like Lukaku can play. That's what they're missing, right? They've got, you know, on paper, they've got a great back line, great midfield players, but if they, if they can get Lukaku back and doing what he does, that's, for me, their only hope. I think they have to bring Lukaku back. He's the only striker out there, realistically, at that level, who's, well, who, I mean, they already own him, so he will be coming back, but who's going to join Chelsea? I mean, they could potentially finish in 14th this year. Who's going to want to join Chelsea? Like I said, unless somebody goes, here's 300 grand a week. So they're not, they're not going to be buying top talent unless they're there, going to be there for the wrong reasons. So, yeah, I, I can see that. Lukaku coming in and Poch is going to have to try and implement a style of play very quickly and get these players on board. Um, I think the biggest problem for Chelsea is they've got all of these players on long contracts and a lot of the fans and, and you know, the media are suggesting that a lot of them aren't good enough. So they're going to have to try and flog a few because apparently they're in they're in debt. Well, they're going to fail financial fair play, aren't they? So they're going to have to get rid of a lot of players. And when you've got players on seven, eight-year contracts, so let's say Mudrick as an example, if they are fed up of him and they want to get rid of him, who's going to buy him? No one. So he's going to be hanging around the club for years. Like Everyone was saying it's really clever business buying these players, putting them on long contracts so the amortisation you know, kicks in and it, it doesn't kick into your next financial year. What they haven't realised is if they fail, which they have all now, they've got to get rid of them. And nobody's going to come in for a lot of their players on the wages that they're on for, for the amount they're going to have to pay. Yeah, look, I, yeah, I, 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 I sit somewhere maybe in the, in the middle of those two. I think the one thing that Chelsea have in their favour is their squad is so huge that they can sell. And they've got so many players out on loan, and so many homegrown players in and around the squad. So Levi Colwell at, at, at Brighton, as an example is an option for them to sell for 30 million. He doesn't touch the first thing. Now, he should probably be... And if you put a buyback clause in there, if you do something with that, you could do something clever with that. But they've got enough players out on loan and they've got enough... You know, even the players... I, I'm not a great fan of Ruben Loftus-Cheek, but you're going to get money for Ruben Loftus-Cheek. Conor Gallagher, someone's going to give you 40 million for Conor Gallagher. You know, they, they are going to be able to move players out that aren't those players that you talk about. I, so I agree with that. Like, you're going to get some players like your Gallaghers, but who's going to realistically touch Loftus-Cheek and how much is he going to go for? Like, not a lot. And I, I get the Levi Colwell argument as well. So they're going to make some money off a lot of the players, like you said, in the background. But there's a lot of players on big money. So it's not it's not just sort of the fees that they need to generate. It's, it's the wage bill as well. And yeah. the amount of money that they've been paying to a lot of these players, like, they're going to struggle to move them. Like, they really are. And they're probably, and like, see, Loftus-Cheek, I don't know what he's on, but let's, he's going to be around 100 grand. No club is going to pay him that amount. So is he going to want to move on? Like, I just think there's going to be players who are going to struggle or going to have to take a hit on them to get rid of them. The, the, the one that we haven't mentioned that I think actually is going to be the hardest of all of them to shift is Raheem Sterling. You know, oh, what, yeah. has hap what has happened to him? He's gone from being England's certainty, you know, banging in goals left, right and centre uh, to to just an, a non-event. Like, I, And I don't see where he goes. I don't see what the solution for him is because I don't think he's going to get in that Chelsea team. Uh, he's definitely not going to get, you know, a £70 million move and... and People definitely aren't going to be paying him three hundred grand a week anymore, based on the, the stats and the numbers he's kicking out. So for me, that's that's the really interesting one that I can't. I can see a Pulisic, I can see a Ziyech, I can see some. I can see a Crystal Palace going for Ruben Loftus Cheek. I mean, I can see Conor Gallagher ending up at a Newcastle. You know, I can see these players all moving on, but but Sterling is the one for me that I just don't see where he goes from here. The best way for me to describe Sterling's career at Chelsea is that I forgot he was a Chelsea player. That's how little that he's done. But he's 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 a singular example, isn't he? Like we we've spoken about Cucurella privately, haven't we? How, how are they going to shift him? Like he'll be on big wages as well, and he's been awful. 
Like I, I think they've just got a lot of players, and Sterling's your best example because of his age as well. But I do think they're going to struggle to to take a lot of these get a lot of these players off the books because the people who want them, like you mentioned, Ruben Loftus Cheek and, and Palace, they're not going to be able to afford his wages. He's going to have to take a cut, or Chelsea are going to have to subsidise it to move which isn't, I don't think they're in that bracket of being able to do that with financial fair play, are they? So they're going to be the interesting one for me this year, just because, you know, they're, they're willing to spend, but they're going to have to sell to spend as well, which, yeah, who's going to buy the players? Yeah, I think the biggest shock for, for, for some of the Chelsea fans, and again, obviously I'm clearly from my accent, I'm a Southerner, so I have lots of Chelsea fans uh, in and around my space, uh, and I was speaking to some just last week, and they were all very blase. It's okay, we'll just go out and find Victor Osherman. And I'm like, you, you really believe that he's going to leave Napoli to come and sign? Yeah, yeah, we'll just pay the money. Like, no, you've, you, you've, you're missing the point, guys. That, that's not going to happen anymore. Like, in the old times, you may have been able to attract a Victor Osherman, but there is no way. First, if he becomes available, you're going to be one of about 50 clubs that are after him, A. And B, why in... Why would he be picking you out of all them other clubs? Like, but but the Chelsea fans still believe they're in that that mindset of we just pay the money and they'll come. And as a club, they are in that bracket, aren't they? Which is probably why they think that. But what they're not realizing is they're, they're not going to be able to sign him. Like he, he'll go for hundred million and he'll be on three hundred grand a week, which they can't afford. That yes, you know they've been splashing money around here, there, and everywhere. But financial fair play is going to kick in, and they can't afford him, so they're going to have to flog a lot of players. And like we said, that people aren't going to want them. And also, why would he want to drop to a team who could potentially finish 14th when he's won when he's just won Syria and he's going to have the whole all whole of Europe after him? Like, just isn't going to happen at all. So they probably do need to to have a look at it. They might, do you know what? I think they need to go back to a project manager, which I think Poch is. He's he's better as a project manager. And he's going to have to come in and he's going to have to look at the team that he's got, sell some players, buy in some players who fit the, the mould of what he's trying to implement. You know, different to what he did at PSG, inherited a load of stars there. So I, I actually, I don't actually think Potty's that bad of an appointment because I do see him more as a project manager rather than an elite manager. And this is a project. But the question is, does Todd Bowley think it's a project? Does he think Potty's going to come in and turn it around instantly? Well, I think they've already uh, given us that answer with their, their treatment of Graham Potter. And uh, yeah, look, we, we, we have to, we, it's a really interesting debate and I'm sure Chelsea over the summer will become uh, this may even turn into a Chelsea FC podcast because they're going to be a really interesting uh, conversation along with Newcastle, to be fair, around what they do, obviously now being in the Champions League. I think Chelsea are going to be a really interesting space and, and, and a watch over the summer, which I really look forward to talking to more. But we have to move on to this week's fixtures because, as with everything, the Premier League's moving at a real pace. And let's start with that Monday night fixture. We touched on it earlier. Uh, loser, in my eyes, is down. So there we go. I'm, I'm going early with a prediction, Fran. The loser is down between uh, Everton, or sorry, Leicester and Everton. Uh, it is at Leicester, which I think gives them maybe a slight advantage. Everton look, as we just both touched on, sort of defeated and, and beaten. And I think this is this is an absolutely key, key game for both that could determine both of their futures. Because I believe that if either of those two teams go down, they don't come straight back up. Yeah, it's um, it's a tough one for both teams, isn't it? Because, again, I, I asked, I'm going to, have to say the say the same question here: is would they take a point? Now we've we, you know we've just spoken about it and say no, you wouldn't. You need to have a win. The thing is, if a result goes in in all in their favour, Brentford beat Forest, Bournemouth beat Leeds, and they both get a point, it takes them a point closer. So I I do agree that obviously they have to go out and try and win the game, but I don't. I don't think a point is the worst result if results go your way. And that's the beauty of playing on a Monday night. So I actually think the results previously, which will obviously come on the Saturday and Sunday, might dictate how this game's played out. So if you do get a Forest win, as an example, then they're going to have to go flat out for a win. I think you'll see a really entertaining game. But I think if both Leeds and Forest lose, I think you might see a bit more of a, a tactical battle between Leicester and Everton. So I, I think this is a, not just for the state of the... Uh, you know the league table, but actually, what the league table will look like before the game is played. I think this is really interesting, and that's that's a really good point because this week, obviously, uh, Leeds and Leicester were, were were on the Tuesday, so the first night, so the point looked good at the time, ended up being bad. Like you say, playing later after those teams actually does give them a potential. Uh, really interesting benefit and advantage, isn't it? And I guess it's why sort of things like the World Cup, you know, the, the last game in the World Cup is always played and the last game in the Premier League season is always played at the same time. Uh, so you're right, actually, that that might shape that game and, and, and a point 
could become better value. But but for me, because three points at the moment makes such a difference to where you are, to where you could be, that the, both teams, for me, have to forget that and just play for the win. Because, you know, if I'm Everton, you know, 31 points, that could take me out of the bottom three. And again, I think psychologically, if you're out of the bottom three, maybe you play with a bit more freedom. I, I think... I think this is going to be a real war of a... I mean, like last week, obviously, I, I got it horrendously wrong. I went with uh, lots of goals and over two and a half and all the rest of it. I, I think this could be a real war of attrition, this game. I think it could be a, a real Monday night battle. I think what's interesting about it is when you look at the two teams, you look at the goals scored and and again, Leeds, uh, sorry, Everton don't seem to score many goals and Leicester you know, have been scoring goals. High score in the the bottom five. So you would suggest there that Leicester will probably, um, you know, score and Everton might not. But then on the flip side, Leicester concede a lot of goals and Everton do seem to be nicking a goal here and there. So I expect both teams to score because I don't think both teams have kept a clean sheet in a long while, especially Leicester. I think it's something like 17 games, I think it is, without a clean sheet. So the stats suggest that there's going to be some goals in this game. Um, I think it will be key though as to how the midfield performs. Whoever gets control of that midfield and dictates the play in that game, a bit like what happened with Leicester Leeds, whoever can get control of the midfield, I think could go on and get the victory here, which, uh, you know, home advantage and also looking at the form table, I would expect Leicester to have a lot of the ball and Everton to try and sit in and defend deep. I think it will just be whoever can nick a goal. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I I think I just don't see Everton scoring two goals against anybody at the moment. And, And therefore, like you say, Arguably, a one-all might be the shout uh, because I just don't see. You know, Everton are obviously built around that, or will try to be built around that defensive solidity. You know, Jordan Pickford, Tarkovsky, you know, Michael Keane. You know, again last night, you know, I thought until Newcastle scored, it was actually a relatively even game. Uh, but then, obviously, when Newcastle scored, they Everton folded like a pack of cards, as Sean Dice sort of alluded to in this post-match interview. And and I, I do worry that Everton might score one, but but they're not scoring two. Dominic Calvert-Lewin has fallen off a cliff, and he does he even play for Everton anymore. He's been absolutely non-existent, hasn't he? Like he's he's been terrible. I don't know whether he's still carrying an injury and that he's having to play, but yeah, he's been absolutely non-existent for the past few weeks. And and Everton are desperate for him to come back into a bit of form. Like we said about Vardy, you know, coming back into a bit of form could be could be good for Leicester. Everton need Calvert-Lewin to do that, and I think if he doesn't do that, where are the goals coming from? They don't have a backup forward really. Um, you know, the wingers don't really chip in with a lot of goals. Their midfielders are primarily defensive midfielders. They've not really got a lot, a lot of attacking players in that in that midfield. So they are desperate for Calvert-Lewin to come into form. Very, very tense, very exciting. Looking forward to, to sitting down uh, on Monday night to, to that game. And, and this weekend, there's a couple of fixtures that, that sort of historically we definitely would have touched on in more detail. Liverpool, Spurs, uh, Obviously, Arsenal, Chelsea on the, on the Tuesday, but but I'd like us to just go and this this may be left field because I'm not sure we spoke about this game, friend. But just just looking at it now, obviously with Manu picking up the draw yesterday, Aston Villa on the run. They're on. Is there a chance? Is there a chance that if Aston Villa beat Man United, they can catch them up? Uh, it's the only way I can see anybody breaking. For me, the top four is the top four, and that's going to end up being the top four. But Aston Villa are on such a great run that are they the only team that could possibly? do some damage and if they beat Man United this weekend do they stake a claim for maybe still having a chance of breaking into that, that Champions League places so so just on the first question of do I think Villa are the only teams I think the only other team now now Brighton have lost I think they are done and dusted um, you know a couple of defeats in the FA Cup and then against Forest has actually sealed their fate I think um, the only other team that I think can possibly challenge Man United is Liverpool because they seem to have picked up and I know we said um on the last part, you look at the teams that they've beat. They have stuck three in a row. So if they can go and beat Spurs in the next game week, I think they they could mount a challenge because I do see Man U wobbling a little bit here. They've got quite a few players out injured. And I do think just they're wobbling slightly. But I do expect Arsenal, Man City, Newcastle, United to be the top four at the end of the season. Um, but like you said, you've got Villa chasing them who are absolutely flying. So if they can go and beat United, they've definitely got a chance. They have to be in, in the running, but they've got to keep up this form that they've got. And I think we mentioned it on the last pod again. It's title winning form that they've got at the minute. And unfortunately for them, I think they're going to have to keep that form all the way through to the end of the season, which they can do, but it's a tough ask. 
But again, they're just they're just doing it without any fuss and any, any vigor. Aren't they? they just keep picking up results, and it would not surprise me in the slightest for Villa to go and get a goal in the first sort of twenty minutes against Man United. You know, like you say, they're missing a couple of key players at the back there. I thought last night, you know, being honest with you, uh, obviously I was flicking between trying to keep on top of three games, which is which is not always good to get a true reflection of the game. But but actually, I thought Man United looked tired and I understand why and, and, and it was a good time to play them and, and actually playing Thursday night do you have enough to even get back up for Sunday and, and actually does that drag on and Rashford you know doesn't quite look like the player he was a few few months ago Anthony has sort of flattered to deceive where and actually maybe Man United were a bit disjointed obviously their midfield three is very very strong in Casemiro uh, Fernandes and Eriksen but I just think that Aston Villa are just a great team right now and they're playing football in the right way. Like we spoke about the other day, they're doing the simple things well and they're picking up points. And with Oli Watkins up front, they've got a player that, you know, any other team in the Premier League, if he became available, would probably go for right now. Yeah, they're just a solid outfit, aren't they? Um, you mentioned uh, a few pods ago that they don't seem to uh, concede goals. They're picking up a lot of clean sheets and that, you know, they are. I think they've got something like five clean sheets out of the past eight. You know, very solid at the back. And I think Man United at the minute do look like they are conceding goals. So I 100% can see Villa going there and winning. Um, I just think for their top four sort of challenge, they have to, one, beat Man United on Sunday, which is at two o'clock. And second, they have to then keep this run of form going for the remainder of the season, which they're more than capable of doing. You know, look at just looking at their previous results. But it is a tough ask. It's a very tough ask. So my prediction is that they don't make the top four, but it's very possible that they do. Yeah, I think I think we're, we're both probably in agreement. It's just a little bit too far. It's the same as we don't actually think Chelsea are going to get relegated. But if there was another four games, maybe they would. The same with Aston Villa. If the season was four games longer, I, I would be saying that I think they've got a really good chance of getting there. Agreed. Uh, but I've been really, really enjoying watching their journey and watching what the manager has done with that team. And I think you know, if I was a Chelsea owner, as an example, or a Manchester United owner, as an example, and looking for a centre-forward that not only strengthens my team, but weakens somebody that could be coming and causing us some trouble next season. I'd be looking to put all, as much money as I can down on Ollie Watkins and disrupting that Aston Villa project because, uh, first, I think he looks like an absolute player, but secondly, anything you can do to weaken your, your opponents can't be a bad idea. And that's what Man United did historically, wasn't it? They did go around and cherry-pick players from other teams to weaken them. And it's just the wealth of the Premier League now. Smaller teams can can say no, can't they? Because they can afford it. But yeah, it's um, it's something they should be looking to do. Really, is teams around them that are you know on the way up. They need to to start trying to cherry pick some of those players because it's also going to improve their team and hurt the others around them. And Ollie Watkins is a great example of that. He's got potential as well, hasn't he? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't think he's at the top of his cycle yet. I still think he's got a way to go, which is. Uh, Really exciting, both for, for for him and England. I think actually, you know, we spoke when the, during the international break around who who potentially is going to take over from uh, Harry Kane and, and Ollie Watkins at the moment. It would be one of the people that I think uh, is is most likely to do so. Currently, uh, he just looks like a great great find and a great player playing in a good team. And so, uh, yeah, I, th- I think Aston Villa. You know, if you're an Aston Villa fan right now, it's it's a really really good place to be. And a couple of sensible additions, as we said before, they could really become a handful next season. So, as always, we like to uh, do a quick rundown of some predictions and then put some pretend bets on stuff that's never going to happen as we're starting to learn. Uh, so, <laughs> Fran, we're going to just pick some of those key fixtures that we've spoken about and, and a couple of other really interesting games to get a sense of how you think they're going to go. Uh, and then we'll go through what, what you think uh, you're going to put your £5 on for. So, so we're going to start at, at Brentford versus Notts Forest. Obviously, a, a big game at the bottom of the table. How do you see that one going, Fran? I think that's going to be a score draw. I'm going to go one all. I've got Brentford on that one. I think Brentford win 2-1. Uh, obviously, we have to touch on Bournemouth-Leeds. Again, another big game down the bottom of the table there. I can see Bournemouth winning that 1-0. Yeah, I agree. I think I think Bournemouth, I'll go 2-1, but I think Bournemouth do do have enough. Uh, obviously, we're, we're Man City after the, the Arsenal game. Do we see them continuing in their rich vein of form at Fulham? Yeah, I think that would be a, a slaughter in, I see, 3-4-0 there. Okay, uh, maybe without Mitrovic, maybe that is the wrong time to be playing Man City for Fulham. Uh, obviously, Newcastle uh, played bottom of the table, Southampton, who have to get something from that. So, Newcastle, Southampton? Yeah, same sort of thing, 2 or 3 nil. I think Newcastle just go there and pump Southampton. 
we then move on to that Monday night fixture, the one that we've spoken about in detail. Uh, I said maybe a one-all draw. What do you see, Leicester Everton? Uh, I agree. I think it's one-all. Don't think it helps either team. I think that's going to be a problem for them. Uh, the big London derby, can Arsenal bounce back again? Normally, this would have been a game that we spent a lot of time talking about in, in previous seasons, but Chelsea, where they are, Arsenal obviously potentially missed the opportunity. However, it would give them a chance to strike before Man City play their second game. So, Arsenal-Chelsea, how do you see this one going? I see that as Arsenal 2-Chelsea 1. I think Arsenal will bounce back and get the victory. You're giving Chelsea a goal. That's very generous of you. <laughs> They've not scored many goals since uh, since Frank came in. Okay, so uh, every week we have a little £5 challenge that, that technically in terms of a money sense you're winning, but you've been playing the game. Uh, so I have to give you the, the money, of course, because like, technically I'm winning in terms of how many bets have come in. So, so this week... Uh, I think we're not a million miles away from what we're doing. So talk us through uh, what you've gone for this week. So I've I've gone back to my tried and tested method. I've gone with um, two two favourites and then sort of a an outsider, which boosts the price a little bit. So I've gone for Man City to win, Newcastle to win, and I've gone with the Leicester and Everton draw, and that's five to one. The draw would really bump that score up, wouldn't it, in terms of the odds? Uh Interesting. Okay, so I've, I've gone for a fourfold that, that I feel is a, pretty much a guarantee of them. So I've gone for Brentford, Liverpool, Newcastle and Manchester City. Now, I'm not going to retire on the winnings. It's only uh, it's only three to one, but a winning odd is a good odd. We have to get back into winning these these things. So so for me, three to one, that feels like a pretty, pretty much a home banker for me. Uh, excuse the pun. But we are going to just touch on how close we were to being absolutely spot on with our... And we, 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 we put a little... It on it for, for charity we, we were going to if it coming it would have been very good odds wouldn't it but it, it very nearly came in didn't it yeah it was close it was two correct scores wasn't it it was 103 to 1 um, we had Leicester to win 2-1 which was 1-0 and we had Man City to win 3-1 which was very close up until the last second I think at the beginning of the game we were, we thought we were wrong didn't we we thought it was going to be 8-0 the way Man City played but yeah it was really close so it gave us a good run for money didn't it and arguably, you know, the, the Leicester game with a couple of disallowed goals could have been correct as well. So it was very, very close uh, to being a real long shot that came off. I, I don't normally do correct scores because it is very difficult to do as as proven. But uh, yeah, close, but 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 no cigar. And uh, hopefully this weekend with something a little bit more realistic in a three and a five to one. Hopefully we can we can get both over the line. Uh, Fran, obviously, uh, always enjoy uh, these conversations. Again, remind people where they can find us and how they can reach out. So we're on uh, uh, Spotify. So if you just search for the atmosphere is electric, you can obviously hear the pod there, but there is a voice notes function. You can send in any questions to us. And we're also on Twitter. So the uh, if you again, if you just search for the atmosphere is electric, um, you can tweet us and there's any direct messages. We are regularly putting out content. So whether it's questions, polls, all those sorts of things. So please get in touch and like and subscribe. Fantastic. Love it. Well, Frank, as always, really, really enjoyed spending some time with you, buddy. Thank you very much. Uh, Everybody, I hope you have whoever you support. I hope your team wins. Uh, have a great weekend, and we look forward to speaking to you next week. Take care, friend.